Welcome back again. It's another interview uh, with the uh, Marx Engels Lenin Institute podcast. And today I'm rejoined by uh, a previous guest on the program. It's uh, Steve Sweeney, who's a correspondent for RT. And last time we spoke to Steve, it was about a myriad of uh, different uh, conflict zones that he'd been reporting from. But his latest uh, uh, latest job is to be in uh, Donbass reporting on uh, what's going on there. And he's been he's visited Donbass a number of times over the past few months. So uh, we're going to be getting the latest from him with regard to what's going on there and a bit of reflection on the history as well. So, Steve, welcome back to the program. Thank you. It's good to be here. Now, Steve, you're obviously in Donbass at the moment, as I said in the introduction. So why don't we start off just by talking about what is the latest that you've observed there with regard to um, the war that is going on and has been going on for a long time now. But how has things been affected there by the much vaunted but now clearly failed Ukrainian offensive has it really changed anything that the civilians there have been going through anyway? So can you give us your impressions of um, how things are there at the moment? Well, I mean, I would start by saying things haven't really changed much for the civilians um, in the Donbass region uh, since the counteroffensive started. I was, I, was, I was here when it began, and of course this has been... Uh, much vaunted in in the West, the Western press. I think, I mean, really, the Western press were goading Ukraine into starting this um, this counteroffensive, which has become more apparent when you listen to the, um, you know, what Zelensky and and what a lot of the Ukrainian military leaders have started saying. Um, you know, they've almost conceded that they were pushed into launching this counteroffensive without adequate supplies without adequate weapons um and without really the resources to carry it through because i mean this counteroffensive you know it's a major operation and um you know they were talking about if you remember uh, there was a lot of chatter online, particularly from the NAFO uh, crowd, and I'm sure we'll talk about those in more detail later. But they were talking about having a party in Crimea in the summer. Now, of course, that patently hasn't happened. The counteroffensive has been an unmitigated disaster for for Ukraine. I'm uh, sure you uh, um, earlier this week, Sergei Shoigu, the defence minister, gave his latest briefing on uh, the counteroffensive, and he was talking about how. Ukraine had tried, I think, nine offensives along that front. This the the um the front line stretches around a thousand kilometers. So it's quite, you know, this is quite long. This is where uh, Russia has dug in deep and it has these uh, defensive lines. And he said that, you know, those I mean, what's happening is, you know, it's a bit of uh, uh, to and fro, really. I mean, Ukraine will make some gains, or they think they've made some gains. They'll get quite excited about it, only to realise that they've been sucked into uh, an area that then, then their, um, you know, their soldiers are, are quite um, easily dispatched, and the military hardware is being destroyed. So you've seen probably the stuff on uh, circulating around social media over the capture of uh, Bradley fighting vehicles. But the losses have been catastrophic. 26,000 Ukrainian soldiers since the counteroffensive began. I mean, that's uh, those kind of figures are simply unsustainable and they've made no gain. It hasn't achieved any of its um, any of its goals. 3,000 weapons destroyed, 1,200 tanks, 300 of those or just over 300 of those since June the 4th. So I mean this is 
Um, it's not going very well. 17 of those have been leopard tanks. These are the German... Well, we're not allowed to call them German tanks anymore, I don't think. That was the... Uh, Berlin was complaining about that, saying, well, they're not... They're not German tanks. Stop calling them German tanks. They're Ukrainian tanks now. <laughs> so since they since they gave them to Kiev, I mean, I I have a, a a view on this as well. Actually, I mean, I mean, I think they really overestimated the um, the Leopard tank. This was a, supposed to be a game changer. We've seen many of these game, you know, heard about many of these um, game changers. But the Leopard tank was supposed to be a game changer, if you recall. But I mean, they've been set about. Um, yeah, very quickly by by Russian forces. It's all very well and good sending them into certain conflict zones, but you're up against a highly professional, highly trained, highly skilled army that's you know had these defense defensive lines dug in for you know more than a year now. So I mean, these are you know and, and well mined, obviously, and you know I, I think you know if you if you if you recall now that that um, Joe Biden and and um, and the United States were were really forcing Berlin's hand on this. They were really pressing them to say, "Look, you've got to you've got to give these leopard tanks. You've got to send these leopard tanks to Ukraine." And and you know, Olaf Scholz was quite rightly uh, uh, skeptical about this and said, "Well, you need to send the Abrams tank." And the United States were like, "May uh, maybe." But send these leopard tanks, and of course, you know, the whole world has seen the leopard tanks being destroyed and shown to be inefficient on you know in a conflict zone, an active conflict zone. So, um, you know, the people that are rubbing their hands most at this are the manufacturers of the Abrams tank, because nobody in their right mind is now going to look to the leopard tank as um, you know the 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 you know a, a machine that they're going to want to use you know in a war. I mean, they've proved to be completely ineffective. So I think there's something in that. I mean, they, the United States did say, I think, in January that they're going to supply the Abrams tank, but it's going to take some time. So, I mean, just on, on, on that kind of, on that one level, I mean, there's been, you know, we've seen obviously the... Um, you know the the backwards and forwards again about the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant, um, where... I, I, again, this was something that um, when Zelensky started saying, well, Russia has, I mean, he was coming out with all sorts of wild statements. At one point, he was saying Russia had driven cars loaded with explosives into the nuclear power plant site. Uh, he was saying that there were explosives on the um, the coolant reactors or the reactors or whatever um inside the plant uh he said that the that the nuclear power plant had been mined by by russia and this is all building up this is all in the lead up to the nato summit of course saying that you know russia is going to attack the plant russia is going to cause an explosion you must let ukrainian troops get closer that's the only it's the only reason or the only way that the uh, this catastrophe can be stopped and the western press were lapping this up people were uncritically just saying well yeah, Russia's going to do this. Russia's definitely threatening to do this. That despite Russia never threatening to do this, despite um, the head of the International Atomic uh, Energy Agency, uh, Rafael Grossi, saying, well, I was there. I didn't see any of this. And we have teams in the plant. You know, don't forget that they that there's a, um, you know, the nuclear watchdog has a, uh, a team permanently based in the plant. They said that they'd never seen anything like this and they were reporting every single day so uh russia was reciprocating by saying well actually we think that um 
Ukraine is going to launch an attack on the nuclear power plant, which probably was a more realistic, um, you know, uh, um, analysis. And you know, Ukraine have been uh, you know planning this work. Um, I, I think they've been doing exercises for a nuclear disaster in the area surrounding the plant, this kind of thing. So we, we saw that, but of course the West instinctively said, just said without any evidence, Russia's going to do it. And they didn't say anything about actually the IAEA has said, no, they haven't done any of those things. So they just believe Ukraine says has become an automatic qualifier just to print and believe any old rubbish. We saw it over um, the Kovka Dam, which uh, I, again I was in the area when um, when this dam was um, was damaged, was was attacked, or what whatever happened, the explosion happened. This is this was a dam that was built. I think they completed it in 1956. Um, this was at the height of the Cold War. So this this was a um, a dam that was built. It was a you know wonderful feat of Soviet construction actually, um, and it contains just to give you know the listeners some kind of um, view or idea of 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 just how big this um, the reservoir is. It holds the same amount of water as Salt Lake in Utah. So this is you know this mm. is a, a huge um, resource and uh, it supplies water to Crimea. So. The, <laughs> why on earth russia would cut off water supply to crimea is you know is 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 you know kind of beyond me um and also it supplies water for the zaporozhye nuclear power plant this co- uh, for the coolant systems for the reactors there so it's vital in maintaining security and stability um there it's also worth saying by the way that ukraine ha- did cut the end the um the power to the Zaporozhye, the external power cable, to the uh, external power lines to the uh, nuclear power plant, again in, in this run-up when you know when there was this uh, uh, kind of standoff over over the uh, who was going to attack it, Ukraine or Russia, um, and this was again something vital for nuclear security and stability at the plant. But the the Kohovka Dam again, this was uh, without question. Every single Western newspaper was saying. Um, Russia did it. There was no evidence to suggest that at mm-hmm. all. This was based on it wasn't based on anything. And and I asked many many people, well, you know, based on what? What evidence do you have that this is the that, that um, Russia has done this? And if you look at if you looked at the um, you know the uh, who benefited from it, it was clearly you know, Ukraine were the were the main beneficiaries, um, you know, of, of this because it was you know it was flooding. Uh, Russian positions, um, and also the you know the eighty or so settlements that it was um, that it flooded that it caused this humanitarian disaster in. These were Russian speaking areas, um, and I don't know whether how well known this is in 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 the West, but of course Ukraine back in December twenty twenty two, Ukraine threatened or said uh, said that it had carried out a test strike against the dam using a HIMARS. Mm. Now, uh, you know, if anybody wants to check this, the source for this is the Washington Post. So the Washington Post, um, you know, published, published the article. They, they cite Ukrainian, uh, defense officials, um, Ukrainian members, uh, leading figures within the Ukrainian armed forces who said, yes, we, we considered this, um, an option, but we decided not to do it at this time. Right. So, Okay, uh, you know, on balance, you would say, I don't know, without any other evidence, you would suggest that maybe 
the 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 party that is likely or most likely to have carried out this attack on the um the Kohovka Dam would be Ukraine. But as journalists, it's our responsibility to get to the bottom of this without just parroting or without jumping in straight away because Kiev has said so, because Zelensky said so, um, yeah, that it, that it was them that was responsible. So people were quite angry about <laughs> about that as well. Um, but also, again, I think it was probably slightly under underreported um, in the Western media. But just I think maybe a day or two after the Kohovka Dam incident, the um the Odessa Toliati ammonia pipeline was also um damaged uh, mm. seriously damaged it was put out of action not that it was in action but there were a number of blasts along this um this pipeline now this is a pipeline that was back in March last year so in the weeks after the special military operation began this um you know this pipeline was mothballed now this is a pipeline that takes ammonia um you know obviously to the port of Odessa but th it's absolutely essential in um for, for nitrate phosphate so of which russia is the uh, largest producer in the world it does it um it produces this is essential sorry for fertilizers um so which is again at the center of the grain deal hmm. and um you know, uh, russia again is the is you know, i think you know, is the world's biggest supplier it has the you know it dominates the market the global market it produces it at much lower cost i think it's twice uh, um you know if the united states does it it costs twice as more uh, twice as much and um th there was again as soon as it happened zelensky instantly and i think within you know as soon as he heard it he said yes it was it was russia that did it right russia has destroyed its own pipeline and um, will fix it ukraine will fix it um, which was bizarre, really, because it had been a major sticking point uh, throughout the grain deal negotiations. And one of the conditions that Russia um, had put forward was that this is reopened, that this pipeline is reopened and put back into use. Now, there was only one country that didn't want it to come back into use, and that was Ukraine. So, again, uh, you know, take what you will from that. So, um, I mean, th th that's where part of this um the the conflict is being fought isn't it you know is is you know on, in one hand it's on the battlefield but then also there's a you know the media war as well and you know it's a war of deception being waged by the western press to kind of corral everybody behind the um the blue and yellow flag of ukraine and and of course to them ukraine can do no wrong and russia can do no right whereas you know i think you know you and i and perhaps the listeners will will take a different um view on that you know that things aren't quite as black and white as as they're made out to be now i can give some examples of of where this you know uh, just um how far things have gone um i mean i see it with my own eyes every day and just to give a an indication and you might i don't know if you can hear you in the background but shelling started uh, i mean it it generally doesn't stop it's it's pretty much constant the area that i'm in luckily is is far enough from the um the danger zone the risk i mean i say far enough we're you know only five minutes away um uh, and this area does does get shelled but there are there are parts of donetsk city on the outskirts in particular that are 
you know very very close to the the uh the front line and they're under constant shelling so um people can't yeah i mean just to give an example people can't you know just do basic things like you know going to the shop is is a is a huge risk for people in those areas um even staying at home is a huge risk for people in those areas they call i spoke to a doctor at the local hospital when um um last month when i when i was covering a story about a 12 year old boy who had his leg blown off now he mm. was um Velodja, his name was I, I published this story and i think um you know you may have seen it lots of people might have seen it but this was a 12 year old boy whose leg was torn off while he, uh, as a rocket crashed into the ceiling of his house into his bedroom while he was asleep now um I was there in the house maybe one hour after this incident occurred. There were, you know, I mean, I, it was, it was grim. I mean, there was blood everywhere. The house has been completely destroyed. Obviously his parents and his family were incredibly traumatized by uh, what had happened. And he was uh, taken to the local hospital at that time. They were fighting to save his life and they knew he'd lost a, lost a leg. There was a battle to save his other leg. Um, I, I can report, I met him in the hospital. He was, I mean, for a 12-year-old boy who's had his leg blown off, he was, I mean, I was quite surprised by um, his demeanour. He was he was fairly relaxed, smiling, He, but he said he wants peace. And mm. when I spoke to the doctor in that hospital, that hospital is, again, in, in the centre of um, Donetsk. It comes under regular attack. As I was walking around the, the hospital corridors, the windows have been blown out. There's, uh, you know... Um, wooden boards where the windows used to be and i spoke to the the lead surgeon the doctor there and it went into his office and again it was boarded up and he said that yeah there was an attack he was in the room when it when it happened and a sh uh, artillery shell came smashing through and he he was blown across the room but luckily and then miraculously according to him he survived it but he described um what he said as, as donetsk roulette he said, mm. "You don't know whether you know where these rockets or artillery shells are going to land, and you don't know whether you're going to wake up the next day or not." Um, you know, so it, and it's very much like that in the in the city. That that's um, I've been I, I lost count of the number of shops that I um, have been into, and I've reported from the ground in those areas uh, not long after the incidents, not long after people have been killed. That you know, a woman um, killed just popped in to do her shopping. Mm. And, you know, her shopping bag was, was was still there. So these are the kind of things that are being targeted. Um, it's shops, marketplaces in Golovka. I think 10 people were killed in a marketplace. This was the day before I, I left the last time I was I was here. Now, the, the, you know, this um, the artillery shells landed in the marketplace at um, the, uh, you know, uh, at lunchtime. So, the you know, at a time when it's probably its busiest. So these are kind of designed for maximum... Uh, maximum Im impact yesterday again in Golovka, which uh, we got to a position that was, I guess, around six kilometers from the Ukrainian positions where they're um, gathered for their counteroffensive. And um, again, this is a, a city that's, I mean, you drive around it. And you've seen the pictures of Aleppo. They're familiar to most people, I would, I would, I would think. And it looks pretty much like that. Mm. Uh, most buildings uh, uh, are damaged, destroyed. Um, you know, this is a, a city that's really bearing the brunt of the, um, you know, the NATO-led war. And 
Um, we went there because, again, a firefighter had been killed. And this was after an artillery shell crashed into the uh, fire station or fire and rescue centre. So it's not, not one of the big fire stations itself but you know where they keep a number of uh fire engines so two fire engines were destroyed there was an explosion and unfortunately um this firefighter just a uh, 31 year 31 years old um was killed and i spoke to the local fire chief and he said you know that they're regularly under attack when they go to um you know when they attend emergencies they come under fire mm. um and you know, and of course they're they're stretched as it is because they're you know because the a lot of the um you know a lot of the a lot of the time a lot of the emergencies they respond to are because because of the shelling because people's homes have been destroyed and, and they're on fire and this kind of thing. Um but what, what Ukraine tends to do, what the Ukrainian forces tend to do, and I I experienced this myself firsthand, is they will shell an area or or a or a building and they will wait and we, we call it the double tap attack and it's not just a double tap tap actually it's a double or treble a, a treble tap um which is when they wait for you uh, not for me personally but they wait for emergency services to arrive on the scene they wait for journalists to arrive on the scene um and then they strike it again hmm. so they'll hit it again so this is i think the first day i came to uh not it was in may i think um yeah there was a a, a nurse who was killed when she attended to she was driving on her way to work at the local hospital and she stopped to administer emergency care to people that had been wounded in a a strike on a bus stop i mean bus stops again are also um fairly frequently um struck in in, in ukrainian shelling so i mean this is the kind of thing that we see um i mean i could talk about this and talk about this all day because i mean this is a daily occurrence it, this isn't the sort of thing that um you know happens once in a while so people almost become immune to this mm. and you know i was for example when when i went to when i covered the firefighter being killed yesterday my crew were saying oh steve you know this yeah it's not really major news because um you know this happens all the time and i said well it shouldn't um, it shouldn't be, you know, this, the, there shouldn't be a situation where this becomes, um, you know, where you become immune to it and you think, oh, it's only one person killed. I mean, mm. but that's how it is. You know, that's the reality yeah. is, um, that it's only one person killed. And I said, look, if this was, and I said in my piece and, um, I'll, I'll share this very, very soon because we, we broadcast it now, but I said, look, if, if this kind of attack was to happen in Kiev or Lvov or, take your pick of any of the um the cities in ukraine if a russian um artillery shell or russian rocket or whatever hit a fire station and killed a firefighter it would be front page news it would be in the headlines of the bbc and the itv channel 4 etc and they would be saying look at this um russian war crimes but because it happens here in donbass Nobody bats an eyelid, and the West don't even acknowledge that it's happened. So we get to this position again where, you know, there's worthy victims and non-worthy victims. And, you know, where is the voice? Where where are the people that are speaking uh, uh, for the people of Donbass? Because they don't have a voice in the West. Their plight is ignored. It's been ignored for nine years. Hmm. I mean, that's the that's the reality. This is, you know, for, for, for people in the West... What uh, yeah, the situation here started in um, 
you know, in February 2022, when in reality it started back in April 2014, soon after the Maidan coup, the US-backed coup that ousted the democratically elected government um, in Ukraine, and it unleashed this orgy of violence um, by the far-right forces, by these, by the, the neo-Nazi forces. Um, and, of course, the main victims of those have been civilians in Donbass, yes. which is, <laughs> you know, a, a, an astonishing situation because... You know, just to, you know, the, the, I, I guess the latest thing that's happened is the supply of cluster munitions. And this is, you know, the, the, the uh, cause some, I mean, it's caused some divisions within the NATO countries. I think 123 countries, not all of them, but a large majority of those are NATO member states have signed up to this um, treaty banning cluster munitions. The United States hasn't. I have to say Russia and Ukraine haven't um, also signed up to this um, to this treaty. But I mean, other than voicing or we, we don't, you know, these kind of lukewarm um, statements saying, well, you know, we, we oppose this. This is wrong. What, what are they doing? I mean, as far as I know, it wasn't discussed at the NATO summit. It didn't come up at the NATO summit in any meaningful way. Or there was no no attempt to try and stop this from happening. And today we find out that the cluster munitions are already here. Yes. And, you know, I mean, I'm sceptical um that they've only that they've only just arrived. <laughs> you know, mm. I, I mean, that would be fairly spectacular because, you know, when did Biden announced this. It was last week, I think. Yeah, um, you know that the, he announced the, the the shipment of cluster munitions. Fucking hell! Um, that we that he announced this um, shipment of cluster munitions, and um, lo and behold, a week later they're here. I mean, that, that's quicker than Amazon. Yeah, like, as I Ben mean, Wallace once said. Yes, I mean, you know, for for actually, for once, he's he's right. I mean. Mm. Yeah, he's, he's, he isn't very often, but uh, on well, this occasion, you know, to make this this glib comparison. So, so we do know, but I mean, we do know that you know that I mean, this is the sickening thing, really, isn't it? That 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 people are. I've seen a lot of people, um, you know, politicians, um, you know, included, kind of doing the, these logistical somersaults to justify um, the supply of cluster munitions by saying, "Well, Russia, Russia's got them. Russia uses them." But, but I mean, if they're bad, if you don't like, if you think that they shouldn't be used, you know, the, the, how do you get to a position while Russia uses them? So we're going to. Well, you as know? Biden said, um, and I think in perhaps a moment of honesty, uh, we're running out of other things to send. I mean, that was that was seems to be part of it and that they needed to announce something. And this was yeah. the something. Well, well, yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, I think that they've they've they're you know, that they can't they can't produce the um you know the 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 arms and and the munitions that ukraine needs to keep this failing counteroffensive going i mean i mean they're flogging a dead horse i mean re really i mean this is um i think one of the surely has to be one of the most spectacular military failures in history yeah i mean it's it's uh yeah th this was the, apparently they were you know they they were going to retake the um you know the the donbass they were going to retake crimea they had all of these kind of lofty um ideas but you know they they're not getting anywhere of course as you know as, as i've already said but yeah. uh, it's no wonder i mean if you if you 
the sheer volume of of ammunition that is being used here in Donbass, it's no wonder they're running out because they seem to be, you know, they're firing. We're talking about, I think yesterday, for example, um, there were 56 separate attacks and this used 362 um, different types of ammunition. So these are the um, a mixture predominantly, I have to say, they're the uh, Western supplied um artillery this uh this is like the 155 uh, um yeah mill um shells that, that, that we're finding um but it's a mixture between those and, and grads and then occasionally we get the storm shadows i mean again this was supposed to be a game changer but uh Shoigu said earlier this week that 27 of those have been intercepted and i think they now have the technology of the storm of the storm shadow but um, this now I, I think has been rendered pretty much useless as well because you know what once you've got that you know once you've got into that technology you can you know this undetectable missile suddenly becomes very detectable well i saw um, that the russians had captured one intact um that, yeah. that had come down and it hadn't hadn't gone off so uh, you say they they can reverse engineer these things pretty quickly it yeah. seems thus that's why they've had to get the french to send um a substitute i think well that yeah that's right i mean that, I, I i'm not sure whether they have already reverse engineered it but they they're very very close to it uh, uh, so i understand but i think it was the, the you know that day when when emmanuel macron announced that he was sending also sending long long range missiles and joining the you know joining the club now but i mean um i don't think that they're really i mean even today they were talking about the f-16 fighter jets and saying that they don't think that the f-16s even are, are going to be uh effective so there's going to come a point where they, they'll have to realize well yeah, um yeah they need a they need an out somewhere yes because, uh and Perhaps they are starting to realise that, Steve, because I don't know uh, how closely you've been following the uh, the outcomes of the NATO summit, but the everything that came out of that basically seemed to leave Zelensky as a man without many friends. Given that yeah. the the state the communique issued at the end of that was long on words and denunciations of both Russia and China, but very short on actual details about well, what are they going to do for Ukraine? And it seems that the seems very clear, in fact, that the the NATO membership offer is basically off the table. It's, yeah. It it is now attached to well, once you've won the war, then you can join NATO. But they <laughs> all know very well that Ukraine isn't going to win the war because if Ukraine was winning the war, then the NATO offer would reemerge. So yeah. these characters have gathered up in Vilnius for a, a long session of like self-delusion. But ultimately, all their propaganda and all their tub-thumping for the last, well, over a year about how useless the Russian military is, about how uh, all we need is to send the latest amazing weaponry, be it a Leopard tank, a Challenger tank, a Storm Shadow missile, or an F-16, and the Russians will all run away. Well, clearly, um, they don't believe that, do they? Because yeah. they don't, well, the Americans and the British, on no account, want to risk their own men in this. They are instead insisting that Zelensky continue to feed his forces, throw his men, uh, or the Ukrainian working class men, against yeah. this very well prepared Russian set of defensive lines. And so it's clear that it was all it was all bluster, wasn't it? They never really believed that the yeah. Russian army was incapable for a second. No, I, 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 I think you're right. I mean, the, the, it became, you know, it's very apparent. Actually, the NATO summit has been, uh, you know, we've been following that very closely, obviously, over the, you know, the past, um, the past few days as it was ongoing, and 
you know, I think there was a defining image and, uh, you know, they say a picture says a thousand words or, or whatever. Um, but that picture of Zelensky cutting a very forlorn looking figure at the at the NATO summit where, you know, all the rest of the leaders were dressed in, you know, expensive clothing and hugging each other and all smiles where Zelensky just looked uh, completely out of place, completely lost, like a, you know, an uninvited guest. And that's essentially what he is. I mean, mm. he's, you know, NATO have no desire for Ukraine to become a member. That's very, you know, that's incredibly clear. And what we heard was a lot of these kind of things, these warm words, we stand by you, we, you know, but they're, but they're empty. You know, these are empty words, empty mm. gestures. I think really now, you know, the writings on the wall, I think for, um, you know, for, for Zelensky and, and for Ukraine, um, I, I don't think it'll be too long before maybe they try and push him to the side. I don't know. There's a, there's a possibility now. You know, there's, I know he's, you know, that the elections are not, won't be taking place until the conflict um is is over but you know the, this was a man who they once you know plastered over you know the front pages of magazines and newspapers and you know he was paraded around parliaments across the world if you remember mm. you know particularly well the one i remember mo mostly is the greek parliament where he brought a member of the azov battalion in with him which was <laughs> Quite a, a yeah, you know, an astonishing um, uh, thing to do in 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 Greece of all places. Um, but you know, he's gone from this figure now to kind of they see him as a bit of a nuisance, somebody that's annoying them. I mean, that you know, you saw the statements. Was it Ben Wallace who said he should say thank you more? Yes, I and mean, then he recorded. Zelensky said thank you forty eight times in a very short video. So clearly, yeah. he took the message to heart. I mean, I mean, it's quite astonishing, really. On the one hand, that you know that that you know, uh, you know, he made this comparison. We're not Amazon. The United States delegation and the White House was very angry with Zelensky's lack of diplomacy in this angry tweet that he sent out um, during the summit. Um, but you know that you can see now that actually people are you know the, the the tide is turning against him people are people are kind of getting a little bit more um you know a little bit fed up of him and uh, you know i think that um you know it's, it's perhaps perhaps unsurprising but now you've seen today um the news that well the us is now shifting its attention back to china i mean that's really what this the whole conflict has been about this is about um you know defending the unipolar a unipolar system against a multipolar world that's you know the and you know when we say unipolar world we when we mean one that is dominated by the us where um you know the us has uh hegemony and we're seeing that's i mean that's the one thing that's happened in the as a result of the Ukraine conflict, is that um, you know, not only is uh, Ukraine losing, but the West is losing. Mm. That's the that's the thing you're seeing this move to uh, de-dollarization of the world, um, this shift away from the from the United States as as the as the global currency. You know, all of these trade deals now are being struck in local currency. The emergence of the BRICS alliance, and you know, this is growing phenomenally at the moment. This is really, you know, more and more countries, um, you know, joining that and the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. And of course, you know, the the United States was always threatened by um, Xi Jinping's Belt and Road Initiative. That was something that. Um, really i guess um uh, you know it, it is where the us fears that it's losing its um its influence um in you know on the world stage and you know they 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 started if you remember 
um, with with Hong Kong. They've forgotten about that now, but you know Hong Kong was once. You know we need to save democracy in Hong Kong. Um, you know this is um, you know this is a an oppressive regime that is being ruled over by Beijing and blah. You know, all of this kind of stuff, and they supported the pro democracy protests, which were in fact incredibly violent. Um, separatist organisations, and there was at one stage actually because I, I remember I was covering this at the time that there was members of the um, of Azov that, that took part in those sharing their experiences. Yeah, they were they were there standing up for good old um, Hong Kong and 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 you know these democratic protesters. They were there. I think they went with bows and arrows and um, or sorry, shotguns, whatever they are. You know, the crossbows. That's the, that's yeah. the thing I was looking for um, to take part in those. You know the peaceful protests, the peaceful protests that you know put bombs in hospitals and attacked a trade union building and um, you know set people on fire, tried to derail trains headed for the mainland. I mean, this was um, you know this was it's a full scale uh, sabotage operation, basically. It, 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 I, I, yeah, and and you know it was you know unsurprisingly, if you remember the face of that Joshua Wong, he, he was somebody who was um, you know funded. He uh, came to um, protest, uh, came to prominence during the Umbrella Revolution and all that kind of stuff. Again, you know, there's not many people that have a film, you know, Netflix movie made about them, and you know, of course, he was uh, Demosisto, which was his political party was bankrolled by the National Endowment for Democracy. Shock mm. horror. People yeah. would be incredibly, yeah, incredibly surprised. And then I remember he wrote a letter, this really strange letter to Angela Merkel, begging for help, saying it was a really anti-communist le uh, letter, saying, you know, you grew up under communism, you know how terrible it is to grow up, uh, to live under such a regime. Uh, she basically told him to get lost, you know, mm. ignore, the, ignore the letter. But, um, you know, for those that, that thought, that the Hong Kong the, the Hong Kong protest movement was democratic, and again we have to say the main main cheerleaders for that at the time were Paul Mason and, oh, yes. <laughs> and and the Alliance for Workers' Liberty. And I joked once about the AWL and the Ukraine Solidarity Campaign. And I, I think this was might have been around the time when Nancy Pelosi uh, visited Taiwan which is then you know obviously that that's their next thing mm -hmm. um uh, yeah and there, there were all the provocations and um you know uh, and whatever the you know whatever um but I, I kind of joked and said it oh isn't it about time the AWL launched a, a Taiwan solidarity campaign and I think it was maybe with the net the hour after I'd said that that the, the Ukraine solidarity campaign which is a, a front for the AWL by the way had uh, obviously mm. um put out a tweet in solidarity with um uh, democracy protesters and democracy activists in Taiwan it was as you know, it was like clockwork yeah, as if, as if. I mean, to 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 come back to that very quickly, you know, to to come back to Ukraine. I mean, the the point I was making was that the U U.S. has now uh, come out today and said that it needs to supply more arms to Taiwan. I mean, I don't know how it could possibly supply more arms. It supplied, you know, the uh, increased its uh, military aid to Taiwan. To, to record levels um, you know, in in recent years, it's had special operation forces. Um, camped in in, Ta uh, in Taiwan, which um, China had to tell the, them to leave immediately. Mm. Um, they were there covertly. Um, but just to come back to that, I think there's... Uh, I, I've been meeting here with uh, the Communist Party, um, so we're going to be publishing that interview with the um, KPRF in, here in, um, in Donbass. So I met the first secretary um, yesterday, 
yesterday, two days ago. Mm. And uh, we had a very long discussion about the nature of the, um, the the conflict in Ukraine. Of course, if you recall back in February, um, uh, the, the weekend before the special military operation began, they had met as a party and they put out a call for a global um, anti-fascist coalition against the what they said was the nato-led nazification of ukraine mm. and their analysis i mean you know i don't you know, obviously we have differences with um with the the kprf on on some fundamental issues but on this they their analysis was 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 incredibly good and you know that how they uh, are, are yeah i think it's worth People, if they haven't read that, read the statements from the KPRF on, on you know, the Communist Party, the Russian Federation, on the the special military operation and you know, how they analyze it from a Marxist perspective. I think it's you know it's uh, it's very good. But he was, um, I asked him what kind of response they got to this to this call for a you know for an anti-fascist front, an anti-fascist uh, coalition uh, on an international scale, and and. We spoke a little bit about the response or the analysis from the Greek Communist Party, for example, which has um, characterised the Ukraine conflict as um, an inter-imperialist war, a war between imperialist powers. Um, so we spoke about that a little bit, but also, um, and I guess more pertinent for, for us, is the position of the movement in Britain, and I, you know, I, uh, just to start by talking about the Communist Party of Britain, who, and uh, we discussed, I discussed this with 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 our comrades in 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 Russia, uh, in Donbas, and they were quite surprised to learn of the position of the Communist Party of Britain. They weren't really aware of it actually, mm. uh, which says a lot in itself that the party hasn't you know really reached out to their comrades here for some time i don't think and um this this position that that they're coalescing around this um slogan and it's not just the communist party of britain it's also the and it's been the line that's been pressed by stop the war uh, and this is this notion and in their promotional uh, material for they had a national day of action on saturday which most people would have been at durham for the miners gala i think um i don't think anybody noticed um that they had a day of action to be honest steve no and i'm not surprised because i'm not surprised that it's got a lukewarm response because i think that's uh partly to do with this very confused position that, that the um stop the war has on the conflict in ukraine or the ukraine conflict um and I saw the promotional, I was horrified, actually. I saw the promotional material for this day of action. It was supposed to be, I think, you know, groups in, um, you know, in their own locality were, were organizing rallies or events or, or, or whatever it was. I don't know what they did. But, but I did check the, um, um, I did check the event page and it was, it was telling that a lot of the former, strongholds of stop the war where they had very active um groups and they've you know that have held you know huge rallies and whatever in the past uh they weren't even listed as as, as holding an event um but it, but this kind of the 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 lead slogan for it was russian troops out now hmm. what what you know that let's break that down a little bit shall we russian troops out hmm. out of where I mean, where where could they possibly want Russian troops to leave? Well, clearly um, the the demand that they've 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 come up with uh, in line with you know Agent Paul Mason, 
the AWL and others, is that they are demanding the withdrawal of Russian forces from Donbass. And you can you can articulate better than I can, Steve, the what the effect of that would be. Well, I I mean, it doesn't need me to articulate it. I don't think we can we can just look at um, very recent history to see what that would mean. Mm. And of course, they mean Russian troops out of Donbass. That's that's the only place where uh, Russian forces are concentrated. And at the moment, they are a defensive line against Ukrainian uh, troops, Ukrainian soldiers and Ukrainian far right forces that are involved in that and a genocide. That's, you know, I mean, and I don't use that term lightly at all. This is, um, but that's in reality what would mean if those Russians, and I've spoken to many, many people about this, uh, many people, not just in, in, in Donetsk, but I spoke to people. I was in Lugansk um, last week and I was at a memorial center for the victims of the people that have been killed since 2014. We're not talking, you know, since February 2022, 2014. And I was at a, a field which was turned into a, uh, it was a mass grave with hundreds and hundreds of, um, of bodies that were buried there. And these are bodies that have not been identified, mm. um, you know, by, you know, uh, because they weren't prepared for what happened for this audio violence that was unleashed back in April, 2014. And uh, in the months after that, um, if you if you remember, you might not. People might not remember, but uh, uh, you can see the footage for this online. But on June the second, twenty fourteen, this was you know one of the almost like a turning point in a way. But this was one month after the Odessa Trade Union House massacre, in which uh, at least forty eight more than that were, were were killed, burnt alive by Ukrainian nationalists as they sang the Ukrainian national anthem outside, as they started chanting Slava Ukraine outside, um, as people were being burnt alive, they were being shot as they were jumping out of the windows. Um, you know, we know what happened there, and we know the people responsible for that. And some of those people, the people that were responsible for that for that massacre, um, have not only escaped justice, but they've been elected as um, uh, Ukrainian representatives in um, you know, in Europe and and in other places. Um, I'll send some details about that if 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 listeners are interested. I can I can I can send some um, some of my writings on that. And uh, but but one month after this, this was on May the second. Um, but on June the second, the Ukrainian uh, air force, Ukrainian fighter jets, opened fire and started bombing their own people in the city of Lugansk, and it killed the initial uh, the initial attacks killed eight civilians, and uh, one of actually one of my crew uh, knew one of the victims. One of my crew here uh, knew one of the victims, one of the people that was uh, killed, and this was something that even though we'd started to see this violent. Um, these violent attacks, particularly from the neo-Nazis and the far right, th they were shocked by this to see, you know, what was, you know, then if you, you know, Lugansk at that time was part of Ukraine. Mm. Um, some people will still argue that it is. I'm not going to get into that too much, but, um, you know, so essentially they were seeing the, the very forces that were supposed to protect them flying over and, and, and start, um, you know, dropping, dropping bombs and, and firing at them. Uh, um, but Kiev initially said, well, it wasn't us. We didn't do that. 
you know, we didn't kill our own people. We didn't kill, we're not responsible for these people. But um, I think they tried to blame, because a lot of the deaths happened in, in one building, they tried to blame a faulty um, air conditioner or something. Mm. <laughs> you know, these absurd excuses that they came out with. And then I think they tried to blame Russia or Russian separatists they tried to blame. But unfortunately for them, there was an immense amount of video footage which showed actually that it was Russian fighter jets that that um that bombed these uh these the bombed civilians uh and there was on the ground investigations I think even CNN <laughs> carried out their own investigation uh, they wouldn't do it now of course um back then and they said it's irrefutable that this was the that these people were killed and this building was bombed by Ukrainian jets so I think they kind of rolled back on that a little bit. But anyway, this this was um, hundreds of people were 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 slaughtered in you know in the in just you know a matter of weeks in um, in Lugansk and those bodies the morgues were were full and they couldn't uh, they didn't have the capacity to take any more uh, dead bodies and what they the, the authorities took a, a very very difficult decision to bury um, these corpses in mass graves because of the public, you know, it would have been a public health um, catastrophe. And um, but this is, before, again, before they could be identified. This was a, you know, quite a moving moment to go and see this because there's wooden crosses, um, you know, in, in in a field that, you know, you, you, I mean, it's, I mean, it's just something and, and the names of some of these people are, are, are listed, but again, uh, a lot of them are, are still, yeah, there's still work being done to identify them. So 14,000 people were killed between um, February 2022, sorry, between April um, uh, uh, 2014 and February 2022. And this isn't a figure. I mean, this is a figure that, again, gets a lot of liberals worked up and they say, oh, you know, this is uh, Putin propaganda. Actually, it's it, this is a, a figure that's generally accepted. It's been accepted even by um the ukrainians <laughs> you know this isn't you know this this figure isn't um um open to contest really um only in the minds of western liberals who who now you know have uh, come out um enthusiastically supporting um you know kiev without with, you know without really thinking what they're doing i i maybe they are i don't know um yeah the, the same people that are whitewashing um stepan bandera and or saying that azov and the right sector and um, you know, all the other um, neo-Nazi or far-right formations are, you know, are not as bad as um, we make them out to be. You know, this is Putin propaganda. Everything they don't like becomes Putin propaganda. But, but these things are very real, and they're very real for the people on the ground here. Now, you talk to anybody in Donbass, and I've spoken to I've, uh, a large number of them, and asked them, do you want Russian troops to leave? And they look at you, look at you as though you, you, you know the, the response generally is, "Do you want a sigh?" And that's how they respond because they know full well that at the moment those Russian troops are a protective line between them and and, and, and you know and, and a massacre. And you know the Ukrainians have been quite explicit about what they want to do. People here, I heard somebody refer to the people in Donbass as Untermenschen yesterday. I mean, just, I mean, that kind of language. The people here, I mean, life goes on, people uh, as best they can, but the people here are, um, they're, they're horrified at the prospect of this counter, you know, the counteroffensive being successful. 
because you know they've lived with this every day for for, for nine years. Many of the their friends, their relatives, are on the front line defending. Um, you know, defending uh, Donbass. So, of course, they don't want Russian troops to leave. And it's, I mean, it's astonishing to see. And, of course, you know, the Communist Party of Britain has joined in with this enthusiastically. And if you recall, I think, I can't remember when the local elections were last year, I think in May, not too long after the start of the the military operation they had passed they 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 stood in local council elections you know in i think they were fielding candidates in norfolk and suffolk and wherever you know whatever it was you know getting a dismal result in all of these areas uh, unsurprisingly but their election material and these are local elections where you're talking you know obviously people are talking about local issues but they plastered across the front of it we oppose putin's war and that's um, how they, you know, they number one issue in Norfolk. Yeah, yeah, that's all. That was on the lips of everybody in Kings Lynn. I, I, you know, I mean, it, but it was astonishing that they that they were bending over backwards to say how much uh, you know they oppose Russia. They oppose you know Putin's war is the is a moniker given given to it by um, you know the Western establishment. They've you know so so we, you know and 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 not only that you. You've seen the trade union movement, and I mean, goodness knows um, that the trade union movement is in a particular dire state in 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 Britain. Um, but we've seen the trade union movement, GMB, for example, have put out um, a, a agreed a motion calling for increased arms production, in weapons to Ukraine on the very day of the anniversary of the Odessa massacre, um, where you know these scores of trade unionists were burnt alive and killed. GMB GMB's communication that day was to proudly say that they've donated five thousand pounds towards a um, vehicle that will be going to the front line to support trade unionists who are fighting um, against against Russia. And on that day, you know, of all days of the day of the trade union uh, the trade union massacre, which again they published nothing about. Nothing, not, and and I I searched, and you know since 2014 they've said nothing about the Odessa trade union massacre. Yet here they are, and I and I've discussed this, and next week I have a meeting with the leader of the Donbass Mining Union mm. because we're you know we're talking about actually the uh, you know the the situation for trade unionists in Donbass, and trade unionists in Donbass I can tell you now do not support um, Kiev in this they do not support nato they do not support the calls that are being made by their so-called brothers and sisters in britain that are, because you know as, as somebody said to me yesterday who do they think that these um uh artillery shells who do they think that these weapons are being used against these weapons are being used to kill workers and trade unionists in donbass and that's the reality you know that's yes. the reality and, um, um it's it's the case, isn't it, Steve, that uh, Donbass is the it's the industrial centre of old Ukraine um, and has been for a very long time. And it was the area and it is the area that has survived largely the, the deindustrialization of Ukraine that occurred after the fall of the USSR. Exactly right. Exactly right. I mean, they, they called it you know the beating heart of the um, of the Soviet Union, because here is where, you know, the you know iron um it, you know is mined and there's you know this huge industry i mean a lot of it of, of course um has suffered as a result of the of, of the conflict um the azovstal 
Azov style steel plant being uh, one of those. I mean, it's, you know, this, I, I was there um, recently. We're going back again to uh, very soon because we, we're making a film about uh, the reality again of what happened there. Um, and, uh, you know, this again, just to touch on this, I think this is worth, um, I'm just working on, um, something at the moment, but we're seeing now with, um, with Mariupol, of course, this again is a city that, you know, before February 2022, I doubt anybody outside of, um, Donbass or Ukraine or, or Russia would have even heard of Mariupol. Um, but it became almost symbolic of the, the conflict. Now there's a lot of misinformation of about what happened there, an awful lot of it. Um, I've met people and spoken to people that have said that the truth will come out and the truth and, and the narrative that is being spun in the West about the, this city being destroyed by by Russia is is simply not true. This was, um, you know, the, I was in the, the famous hospital, actually. The, you know, the, the, um, I, I think that uh again was you know one of these places that they said well you this was shelled by ukrainian forces and i met people and they were saying we that they had to take shelter in the basement they were delivering babies in the basement and carrying out medical care there while ukraine um while while it came under shelling from ukrainian forces the azov style steel plant of course is where i, I can't remember the exact figures but a few thousand um fighters were holed up these were um, neo-Nazis, and they were portrayed in the West as the heroes of Azovstal, the defenders of Mariupol. But you walk around and you speak to people in the city, and they have nothing but disdain for those people. They said that they were terrorizing the city for nine years. For nine years, uh, the, these people were um, you know, terrorizing ordinary Russian speakers and the civilians of, of Mariupol. But now there's this um, vision of rebuilding the city. Now, um, that rebuilding has been carried out and the people of Mariupol are saying that there's been more investment. They've seen um, a lot more um, construction in the city uh, than they did in, in more than 30 years of um, Ukrainian rule. And I've seen some of these new apartments. There's a lot of work. There's, there is a lot to be done. It has to be said. I mean, the city is, is uh, in, in tatters. But that work is being carried out at the moment. Russian Russia is 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 helping with the rebuilding uh, of Mariupol. But there's a project that has been launched again, uh, much vaunted in the West, called Mariupol Reborn, and this uh, project is trying to raise 145 a billion US dollars over 15 years to rebuild the city. But it's using money from um, from Europe. And from USAID, surprise, surprise. But this vision is aimed at eradicating anything to do with Russia, Russian culture, Russian language, um, and eradicate the city's Russian history. They're quite explicit about this. This isn't speculation. This is what they say. They say that um, you know, they want to remove um, you know, that whole part of the uh, of, of the city uh, city's history and remake it de-sovietive de de what's the word de communization that'll do yeah yeah the <laughs> <laughs> yeah. sovietification or whatever yeah 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 i think i think decommunization but this is the um yeah of course uh i mean you know if you listen to that language it should be enough to 
um, you know, well, and it would strike fear into a lot of the people of um, residents of Mariupol to hear that kind of language and terminology. I mean, it's quite shocking, really. But they want to rebuild the city, and you know, USA doesn't give you money for nothing. I mean, we know that. Um, I mean, this is part of yeah. This is part of they're trying to achieve what they couldn't achieve on the battlefield, and they're trying to achieve it by. Yeah, by other means, I think that's very clear um, in in their vision. So we're doing some digging into that because this is a new project that's um, you know it's, it's fairly recently been announced. I think they had some launch in 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 Lvov. They've done something in Warsaw, I believe, as well. And uh, you know, setting out this vision of turning Mariupol into a pretty much a holiday theme park. Mm. Um, you know, you can imagine, you can imagine what it what it'll be like with you know once the US get involved. But I mean, the, you know, there's a serious point there. Is is that you know that they're you know that they're using United States and European money to eradicate um, you know the Russian history and culture of that city. And it's not just Mariupol where they want to do this. Of course, this is across the whole of the Donbass region. And this is, uh, you know, this is a, a threat. This is what we mean by, you know, this is a genocide by other means. Um, you know, wiping out, um, you know, a, a, you know, a particular people, and of course, the demonization of of, of Russian people has, um, you know, gathered a phenomenal pace in, you know, in the West. I mean, you know, even, yeah, I mean, how you can eradicate russian art literature and culture from society is astonishing given the you know the rich array of of authors you know your dostoevsky's and chekhov and um yeah this rich um vein of 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 russian writers pushkin etc and again with composers and um and the such like so they'll find it very difficult to do um but this is this is yeah this is what they want and of course they've softened up uh, Western uh, public opinion to make them think, oh, this is perfectly okay. But um, yeah, so that's um, yeah, that's kind of what's happening in in Mariupol. I mean, there are a lot of stories there that will come out eventually. I think um, the one that we're again we're looking into is the, the you know what ha what exactly happened at the drama theatre. Um, and there's you know, this is a, again another story where. The West can't even agree on this, actually, unusually. Um, you have a number of, of human rights organizations, I think Amnesty and, and, uh, you know, the Western media are giving really varying accounts of what took place there. Some are saying, I think they, they initially said no, there was nobody there. Everybody was evacuated. Nobody was killed. Um, they tried to deny that Azov and the far right forces were holed up in there. And, uh, you know, the, the number of deaths has, has been given a range from, I think something like six to six hundred. So I mean, these are wildly variant, uh, you know, wildly varying accounts that, that that are being given about what happened, uh, what happened there. And of course, um, as with a lot of these uh, these incidents, people aren't really going. Yeah, you know, these are um, uh, reports that are uh, carried out from afar. They're not people aren't on the ground. There's very mm. few people on the ground doing on the ground reporting. And when you do do it, like for example, um, you know, I, I, I'm here obviously on the ground. You get all sorts of um, things thrown at you. I mean, for example, you know, I was talking earlier about this um, shop in uh, in Makievka where a woman was killed, a babushka, when she went to do her shopping. And you know, I saw the blood. I saw the shopping bag. Um, there was another 
um, woman who was killed in in her garden when um, a, a shell hit her house in the same attack. Now, uh, you know, I went to the shop. I saw the the holes where two rockets came came through. I saw the the scene of devastation and destruction. I mean, it was you know the, the shop was obliterated, and I recorded there. But I posted some um, some footage and some photographs on Twitter, and instantly I was jumped jumped on. And I was told this: oh, this is fake. This is staged. This didn't happen. I was I was quite shocked at first, and I you know I, I you really think that I would have asked my crew to drive for about one hour through an area that's uh, coming under constant um, shelling, where we were where we would be vulnerable to be attacked. Um, at, you know, at any stage we could have been spotted and and come under fire ourselves. So we'd have done that, driven an hour to get to this place. They didn't know we were coming. We didn't announce that we were coming. We didn't tell them. Um, we just heard about it and thought, well, we'll go and see what's um, you know what's occurred there. And um, just so happened that the shop owners had found, you know, oh, these people have found a destroyed building and set up a scene that made it look like it was bombed and, and people were killed. I mean, I mean come on, the, the, they've got better things to do with their time. I'm certainly not going to be putting our, um, you know, uh, myself or anybody, anybody else got risk to, you know, to, to get a story that's essentially a three minute piece on, um, <laughs> you know, on RT. Yeah. Uh, but this is the thing, though, Steve, isn't it? They, 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 in terms of the British role in this war, a lot mm -hmm. of it is that the British run the, shall we say, propaganda operations and the the media fakery factory that's yeah. uh, creating a lot of the stories that you see in the British press. These are all things that have been come up with by either the intelligence services or various media and psychological operation specialists designed to keep support high for the British government's policy on Ukraine until now, perhaps. So they, they accuse the Russians, of course, of faking everything. But of course, we, we know now that there's a long history of Britain and the United States faking things like you'll uh, know all about this, like the faked um, gas attacks in Syria, like yeah. um, the, the way that the whole um, Yugoslav wars were presented, including the Kosovo war, which, of course, is still rumbling on. <laughs> And yeah. then all the way back to the, you know, Iraqi soldiers throw babies out of incubators and the yeah. tearful testimony of the mysterious um, Kuwaiti girl who turned out to be the ambassador's niece or something in front of yeah. the U.S. Congress back in 1990. So, like, the the, the West has a long history of complete fakes of um, propaganda operations when they want to convince their populations of something. And then we have the Bucha incident, um, which was... Um, a, a now clear and obvious case of the involvement of foreign intelligence services in creating that a, an event that looks like a Ukrainian massacre of people deemed to be Russian sympathizers when the Russian troops did pull out there to draw yeah. on what you were saying earlier and then spun to be a Russian massacre despite the fact that it's clear that it was some kind of Ukrainian auxiliary police unit that did it. And this is what they do. And then they accuse everybody else of lying. But it's simply the case that this is what the British government brings to the table, isn't it, in terms of supporting the US and its imperial wars now. It's some weapon supplies, but mostly intelligence operations and media fakes. Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, they're the masters of of, of doing it. They have a long 
uh, a very long history, in fact, of um, you know of of manipulating public opinion, of manipulating the facts on the ground. Um, you know, going back to you know, we, we, they they even had this elaborate scheme via where the um, information research department. Um, if you, worth checking out, those by the way, George Orwell's friends. Are. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. George Orwell's friends. Um, yeah, the Information Research Department worked with the um, intelligence services, obviously, and 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 the British government to establish these, um, uh, and they they set up this elaborate scheme using the BBC and Reuters to fund local media on the ground, and they did this in. Uh, both the Middle East and in Latin America, where they said that they were going to regurgitate stories that um, promoted and protected British uh, the interests of British imperialism, and you know they've carried out the you know this practice has been ongoing for a very very long time, and 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 again you mentioned Syria, of course this was again something that the BBC was um, was complicit in. Sorry, there's just a shell just then um, where they were. Um, again, funding what they were, they would portray them as local stringers, and those local stringers would be supplied with the, the equipment and the technological know-how to arrive on a, uh, at a scene of a bombing, a shelling, or some kind of event in in Syria, and they would film the um, the opposition, the you know the the, the so-called moderate rebels or the white helmets, for example with this pseudo-humanitarian um, organisation, and then they would regurgitate that as news, send it back to the BBC, who would then say, look, oh, look, these local journalists on the ground have sent us this report. Mm. So, you know, there's a there's a cycle of doing this, and you you mentioned Butcher as well. I mean, that, again, if you recall at the time, Russia said, well, you know, why don't you carry out an investigation? <laughs> come, you know, in the immediate aftermath of what had happened, come and find, you know, come and see for yourself what happened. And they put motions to the um, to the United Nations Security Council on that kind of thing. And of course, they were all blocked and refused, just like they have been over the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Again, this is, a, you know, the uh, evidence, um, you know, suggests that there was involvement from the United States, Seymour Hirsch, um, with his uh, explosive, if you pardon the pun, report, um, an investigation into what happened there. And, of course, the investigations have been stymied again. And, you you know, you have to, you don't have to think too hard to, to um, you yeah, know, to find out or, you know, why that, why that's happened. Um, because, it would show that they're they've been complicit in it. Um, Putin always said at the time, if I really wanted to stop Nord Stream two, I would have just turned off the tap. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, that, yeah, that, that's um, yeah, that's the absurdity of, of what we're seeing. But in Donbass, we're seeing, I think, something slightly different in that the um, you know now we've seen a lot of this um, stuff has also moved on online, and of course we have. Uh, you know, major psyops operations um, from British intelligence services, and of course the US as well. But um, you know that that's what what's happening now is people that are, you know when I'm going onto the scene and when other people are arriving on the scene or reporting from the ground, they're just spinning the you know telling us that we're that we're lying. I did a story today, for example. You know the the, the latest thing, and and I mean this is a serious. Um, story because, of course, um, Vladimir Putin has been referred to the International Criminal Court on charges of child abduction and child kidnap, which is, you know, utterly absurd. Um, I mean, it's just, I mean, it's the most ridiculous um, story that I can't believe anybody gives it any credibility anywhere. 
Um, but of course, because it's um, anti-Putin, they say, yes, this must be true. There's no evidence. Oh, right. Yeah, we, we don't care about that. But, you know, we, we, it must be it must be true. So, for example, this, um, yeah, the the today I w- I've been w- working on a story around a um, a Belarusian um, Paralympic athlete and he um, had uh, uh, organized a series of summer camps activity camps you know the kind we 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 yeah. you know they happen everywhere these these kind of summer camps where they they're playing sports and other activities now he invited a large number of children from donbass to go to these camps i think a couple of thousand i don't know the exact figure but a very large number from donbass partly these were children with disabilities and they were there to get um some kind of re rehab rehabilitation they were there to take part in activities and really just to have some fun and a break from the daily routine of shelling and bombing um and and you know the conflict that um you know that is now um central to their lives so they they wanted a break and a relief from that so it wasn't just the children that went it was their you know their parents not all of their parents went but some of them went with their parents and Ukraine got hold of this story um, and in what in any other country, in any other situation would have been a really nice feel good story. You know, this Paralympic athlete, um, you know, is, um, you know, is giving children a break from from war and, you know, he's doing a really good, really good thing. Uh, But they turned it somehow into a um, story whereby they claimed that uh, that the that the athlete had kidnapped these children the, the children had been kidnapped from donbass oh, and God. were being held, and were being held hostage in ukraine again i'll send the link to the, the to the story in the, the ukrainian press so there's a number of ukrainian organizations now of course you know this story is nonsense. It's, I mean, it's very clearly nonsense. I think this is obviously um, something to try and target Belarus with now, because of course Lukashenko and um, uh, and Putin are um, are close, and of, and of course they're desperately trying to prod and um, uh, Belarus and demonize Belarus and demonize Lukashenko. So I think this is part of what was happening there, that close relationship and, and, uh, and whatever I think is a, they see as a threat. And, a, and especially now, you know, nuclear missiles have been, um, um, posted and positioned there too. But this was a nice story. These kids, I, I met them today. I met their parents. I met the, the, the woman that had organized this, um, yeah, the, the, this trip and these activities, and she's dedicated her life to helping children in 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 the in the Donbas region that that have disabilities. And I saw them today, and I have to say, one of them, uh, Ilya, his name was, is the happiest child I think I've ever seen in my life. He was, uh, you know, he was smiling, he was happy. Um, certainly, the happiest child I've seen in in Donetsk. And he and his his parents said that they had an amazing time, such an amazing time in Belarus that they want to go back and mm. they would happily go back and stay there. And Ilya, one uh, um, part of his disability means that he was unable to walk. But since being in Belarus and since having this um, rehabilitation, he's now able to take a few steps. So there's something really good that's come out, uh, come out of this. But again, this was um, used as part of this... Um, yeah, this child abduction 
um, nonsense that um, yes. Putin has been charged with at the International Criminal Court. But of course, this kind of stuff filters through to the Western press and they will pick up this stuff and without checking it. I spoke to um, the organiser of this and I said, did any of these organisations contact you and ask you about it? And she said no. No media organisation contacted her. None of the um, the Ukrainian organisations that have put forward this preposterous idea that they were kidnapped uh, contacted her. I spoke to the parents of the children. They said exactly the same thing. They said um, it's completely dishonest. And one of them said Ukraine just lies about everything. Mm. And you know that's um, you know that's kind of how they feel. But I mean this yeah. So that's just just one element of one story of, of this kind of this bigger picture, I guess. And um, if you if you recall last year, the um, Ukrainian human rights ombudsman was fired by the by the RAD, the Ukrainian parliament actually as well. So she was fired after she admitted that she had been going around the uh, parliaments in uh, in European countries, and I think she was most proud of her appearance in Italy, where she told these stories all of which turned out to be lies, you know, these kind of fabricated, I think there was one that she was telling about Russian troops raping babies. Mm. This was one of the stories that she, she was uh, promoting. Um, and she said, yes, I mean, I fabricated this because I could see that there wasn't support for um, sending weapons to Ukraine. But after I told this story, they were so horrified, they agreed. And a lot of these stories and a lot of the stuff that she put out um, at that time was lapped up by the Western uh, press, by the Western media, who reported it as fact without doing any further investigation or inquiries themselves because it served a purpose. Mm. You know, there was, you know, I mean, there, there was times when there was absurd stories. I've seen them resurface now talking about Putin's doubles appearing in various oh, places. He's got at least five, um, all of which must be very skilled actors, I must say. Yeah, incredibly, incredibly, incredibly skilled actors. Um, I mean, yeah, this is the, yeah, the, these Putin doubles and, um, but the absurd story, the most absurd story I read once was in the Telegraph, and I was quite surprised that they published it. I'm not, you know, not saying I'm a fan of the Telegraph, but they were claiming that um, Vladimir Putin has an aide that goes with him uh, everywhere he travels, uh, it, whether it's in Russia, outside of Russia. Um, this aide apparently travels with him, and he has one job, and his job is after Vladimir Putin goes to the toilet. He collects the <laughs> he collects the remains, shall we say, of <laughs> of Putin's toilet visits and puts them in a briefcase and then takes them back to Moscow so none of his enemies can uh, get hold of it and find out what's really wrong with him. At this at this point, they were promoting the fact um, as fact uh, Putin's dying. He, he's had almost every disease I think. Hasn't known to he much. been dying continuously for ten years, Steve? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a <laughs> remarkable longevity, considering. He's, he looks incredibly healthy for a man who's, you know, who's, yeah, like I said, he's had every disease known to humanity. Um, you know, I think, um, yeah, they should be a bit embarrassed about that because, if anything, it shows how resilient he is. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which they don't want to show. I mean, that's that's an interesting point. Uh, you know, I know we're kind of joking at the moment, but this, uh, after the Prigozhin failed mutiny, I mean, again, I covered that. I was... Uh, I was tasked with going to find Wagner on the on the day it happened. Mm. Um, needless to say, I didn't because by the time everything happened so quickly 
that this, you know, this mutant, I was, <laughs> I was up until six in the morning covering it, had a brief sleep. And then as I went off to, uh, to try and find them, they'd gone again. Mm. Um, but the Western coverage of that was, was fairly amusing. I think uh, they were more obsessed with it than people in Russia. Um, yeah, there was yeah. A, they thought that they'd finally got their opening. Um, you could tell yeah. that they thought that the fight, the plan had finally worked and it petered out inside a day. Yeah. It petered out within less than 24 hours, I think. Mm. Um, I, I, yeah, I remember. And, um, actually Moscow remained, uh, incredibly calm. People were just going around doing their shopping as usual. There were tourists at all the, you know, the general touristy sites, the bars and restaurants were open as normal that evening. I remember sending a message to somebody. Obviously, I was caught up in it quite a lot because of my job. I was, you know, I was going to cover it. I was on a, a Wagner hunt um, to try and find out where they were and try and speak to some of their uh, some of the some of their people. Um, so it was, you know, for me, it was quite intense. And I remember messaging someone saying, "What are you doing? Are you in Moscow?" And she said, "Yeah, why? It's um, uh, you know, it was my birthday this week. I'm celebrating. I was, and I was just, you know, a little bit concerned, but." Nobody really batted an eyelid. They didn't really know what, what you know what to make of it. I don't think. And then, um, obviously, you know, Prigozhin made it as far as um, Rostov, and then up to Voronezh um, on this march for justice on his way to Moscow. They would never have made it there, I have to say. Mm. And uh, yeah, there's um, yeah that that's simply a fantasy that lives um, you know in the in the mind of Western liberals. I think that that Prigozhin was somehow you know, Wagner had gone from. Um, Nazis and war criminals to freedom fighters, and within you know within the blink of an eye, mm. because you know, they thought that, that there was going to be some you know coup against Putin. But of course, it didn't have any you know the, 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 this march for justice, this mutiny, this coup attempt, whatever you want to call it, had absolutely no support. It had no support from the people. Mm. It had no support from the military. It had no support from uh, any political party. So while the West was, um, you know, kind of salivating over this and saying that it's weakened Putin, in fact, if anything, the opposite is the case because Putin's popularity ratings surged during this. And mm. <laughs> he became, you know, his popularity, uh, his polling rating, poll, poll ratings were higher. And Putin managed to unite communists he managed to unite all of the opposition parties or the you know the, the the main opposition parties he managed to unite the chechens um all of them were supporting putin and opposing this uh you know this this supposed mutiny and again the population was simply not interested in it so now it's you know it's almost like yesterday's news yeah, um, does well, uh, just, does rather beg the question though, Steve. I don't know if you have any thoughts on this. Which, which it is. Well, what the hell was it actually about? Because it the more the the further away we get from it, the less um, plausible any of the explanations that have been offered seem to be. Yeah. I mean, it's difficult to say. I mean, there's a lot of speculation um, about what was behind it. I mean, I think the thing that we can rule out is that you know that uh, one of the one of the um, positions put forward was that it was a a psyop, mm. um, you know that it was you know that it was fake. It wasn't a real, but no, it was it was it was very real. Um, you know, we have to remember. Don't forget that you know some uh, there was a number of Russian um, soldiers that were killed during this, um, you know, this incident. So it was it was very very real. But I think uh, Prigozhin's a very complex character and 
I think maybe I, my guess is that he believed his own hype. Mm. And, you know, the, the, because the, you know, the, the Wagner have had some successes and some, you know, some very impressive successes on the battlefield. But those successes have also been achieved with the support of the Russian armed forces. And the Russian armed forces have also had some incredible successes. So not that Wagner is filling, um, you know, filling a, a, a gap that the Russian armed forces were unable to. I mean, they, they were working under the direct control of the Russian armed forces. So I don't, you know, I, 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 but I think for... You know, I think um, uh, Prigozhin believed his own hype. He believed that he was really the main man when it comes to the, uh, um, you know, to, to the conflict. And without Wagner, Russian forces would collapse, and the Ukrainian counteroffensive would be successful. I think that's kind of, kind of it. And um, yeah, I, as for what he wanted to achieve, I'm still not entirely sure. I think he probably wanted some kind of. He wanted to demand some uh, changes within the Russian military leadership. And he thought that the best way to do that was to, you know, uh, to, to march thousands of uh, his, his troops. And I mean, people say, well, how was he allowed to get so far? How were they allowed to get so far? Well, uh, this isn't because Russian forces were weak, by the way. Again, this is a, <laughs> this is another myth. The reason he managed to get so far is because, Russian forces were not going to fire on on fellow their fellow comrades. Simple. It's really as simple as that. There was no uh, what were you know they were not going to get into a situation where there was a bloody armed conflict and and you know or trigger a you know a, a civil war. So it wasn't even close to to anything like that. And I think Prigozhin probably got as far as he did and then realised that actually this probably isn't a good idea. And Lukashenko, I think, told him that this isn't this isn't a good idea. This won't work out well for you. Mm. So, um, you know, I it's not really so. I mean, it's not it's not changed much. And people are saying, well, why hasn't Putin dealt with Prigozhin? All of this kind of stuff is, you know, again, is speculation. I don't like really to get into that too much. But mm. but what I would say is that look, Putin's focus at the moment is on the special military operation. Prigozhin and Wagner are a sideshow to that. And, you know, the Russian armed forces have to uh, focus on the, on the job in hand. They've got a big enough force to fight at the moment. They're fighting the whole of, um, you know, the Western imperialist powers and, and, and NATO. And they're flooding everything. They're throwing everything and the kitchen sink to try and destroy Russia. So that's what his focus is. Um, and Prigozhin, I think, is a, is a side issue. Um what he's doing, whether he's in Belarus, whether he's in Russia, disguised in one of his many wigs, I, you know, <laughs> who knows? And, and, you know, and to be to be honest, who cares? Um, mm. Yeah, I mean, I think those, you know, Putin's a wily character. I think those scores will probably be settled at some stage, um, but yeah. that time, yeah, that time isn't 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 now. There are other other things to to focus on i've met and interviewed um you know some of the wagner forces and wagner commanders um i was up near their headquarters in in st petersburg and you know they describe themselves as you know a band of brothers which is again you know it's a cliche i guess for people that are in the armed forces but um uh, apparently according to the meeting that was held between putin and prigozhin um recently some 5 days after this failed mutiny the um, Wagner forces were kind of in agreement that they will uh, that they will join the Russian armed forces. Mm. So 
you know again a lot of this is discussion behind closed doors we simply don't know what you know what the reality is and and what's happened but again i think that you know there's a danger i think in reality again i think this is more of a talking point in the West than it is in Russia. It's yeah. not really, you know, it's it's not really a major issue here. People have a lot of respect for for Wagner, actually. I mean, this is why when they were in Rostov, people, you know, okay, were, yeah. I think initially they were they were perhaps a little bit um, a little bit worried, and there was some there were um, there were some incidents. I think some firing and shooting in the air. So it wasn't quite as peaceful as people make it out. But again, it wasn't a major threat. And I was in Rostov um, a week or so ago, and the situation there is perfectly calm, back to normal, and people almost have forgotten about what happened. I think um, you know that's yeah, that's it. I mean. You, you know, the rest is open to speculation. And that was one of the things that, um, you know, soon after, you know, the, the the failed mutiny, there was all sorts of conspiracy theories being peddled. I think one one was this was just a ruse to get Wagner into Belarus and use Minsk and, and Belarus as a base to gather their forces and then attack and march on Kiev, which, you know, I mean... <laughs> I think I a bit bit fanciful to be honest. I mean, why would they need to um create a ruse to move rush what are Russian forces into uh, the territory of the of what's already a home t- or a hosting many thousands of Russian forces anyway? It, well, exactly right. Yeah, exactly. And and yeah, why would they have done you know use such a dramatic uh <laughs> uh, you know, operation to do it. They, you know, there's no way that they would have done something. You know, something like this. We didn't know. You, know, you don't know what was going to happen. They would have just, like you said, you know, Belarus is a friendly country. They would have said, "Well, we're sending you into into Belarus now." <laughs> <You know? laughs> I, mean, it, 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 I mean, I just, I just find that, yeah, that was an astonishing kind of um, conspiracy theory. But it was one that was again, it was this was peddled by the West, I think, as well. They were, yeah, uh, they were jumping through hoops to say, Yeah, look at this. This is now Wagner is being used as an auxiliary force in Belarus. You know, it's just, it's just fantasy, I think. Yeah. And, um, yeah, again, like I said, it's a, it's a distraction and it's a sideshow. And, you know, we'll let the, you know, the conspiracy theorists, the YouTubers, the bloggers who love nothing better than to get, um, you know, in a in a twist over things like this, they can discuss it, and we'll let the real, uh, you know, people on the ground, the journalists, um, and uh, you know, those of us that are in Donbass or whatever, we, you know, we'll carry on, uh, you know, reporting, um, you know, what we see on the ground and the reality. But yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's a, um, all sorts of things happen in 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 conflicts. That's just, uh, yeah, that's just one thing. It lasted, it lasted a day. It's been and gone, and it's old news as far as I'm concerned. Well, final final question, Steve, um, before we wrap up here. The the story coming out of the NATO summit is that Zelensky has basically been given his performance improvement plan, which is that he has to um, provide evidence of serious gains to his managers by the end of the year, i.e., what they're talking about is that Ukrainian forces have to basically get to Crimea by November or December time, or or it's curtains in terms of, well, maybe him, but certainly any further support from the United States and the the imperialist powers in the NATO bloc. So that seems to be, I mean, the Czech president came out and basically said that. I don't know whether he was supposed to. 
But if oh, given yeah. that, that is the case, um, uh, how do you see, with your knowledge of what's happening on the ground here, this playing out? I mean, to me, looking at this from afar, this seems a complete impossibility, given that Ukrainians have spent an awful lot of time, money, and, de and, and dead men getting absolutely nowhere. So it seems like they're, they're basically just being condemned to... Um, make this war last as long as they can whilst the u.s basically pulls up sticks and heads elsewhere well i think i mean i think you've summed it up in a nutshell is i mean if you remember right back at the beginning of the of the conflict um since the war you know the special military operation um you know washington was very explicit in in that its goal was to weaken russia and to and to drag the war um on for as long as long as possible um you know to, to to weaken russia and i think again that's the only objective they can have now because this um for ukraine for nato um for the west it's very clear now that this is unwinnable for them and you know this fantasy of taking crimea is just not going to happen it really isn't going to happen and the difficulty that they have is not just the Russian uh, defensive line. So we have, again, if you, you know, look at things on a very, very basic level, Ukrainian forces have been unable to penetrate even the preliminary, def preliminary defensive line. They haven't even got to the first defensive line. I mean, the, so, uh, yeah, and, and these are um, defensive lines that have been built for, for over a year. Uh, the Russian troops are very, very well uh, dug in. And all they're doing and all they're encouraging is to send more and more Ukrainians to the front line. And, you know, let's not forget that these are not skilled fighters. These are uh, men of fighting age that are being dragged against their will. You've seen, I, I will um, guess that you've seen and, and, and the listeners would have seen the, you know, some of this horrific footage of young men being pulled from you know, in metro stations or from cafes on the street and they're being physically dragged, beaten uh, and then thrown into um, you know, into the front line of a conflict. It's press many ganging, basically. That's exactly, yeah, exactly, exactly what it is. And there's going to come a time, I think, when, you know, when you know, the Ukrainian people are i imagine very very war weary and you know they're, they're seeing young men their relatives their loved ones um being taken to the front line in a war that is being pushed not by them but by the united states a war that is being pushed by nato a counter-offensive um that they've been pressed into into launching when they weren't ready to launch a counter-offensive and they're just seeing you know people being churned up not just you know we can take the military hardware and the and the tanks um, and the weapons take all of those out of the equation and what you're seeing is 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 young men being sent to the slaughter um you know that's that's the only way to describe it because they they go you know people are saying now they don't want to get inside leopard tanks because leopards are deemed a high priority target for the russian military and they know that they're pretty much useless and and they're destroyed very easily so people aren't wanting to get in those um uh, in, you know into those tanks i think I'm sure Britain also, by the way, sent Challenger tanks at some point. Oh, yeah. The, the Ministry of Defence told the Ukrainians, though, apparently, that they're not to be used. Yeah. So they're, because yeah, they're they only... don't want their image of them blown up uh, because it would be bad for sales. Well, exactly. I think that's, I mean, that's, 
um, you know, that's that. Uh, you know, that's the, the only thing that they're good at is hiding. Then, mm. I mean, so what's the point of having these tanks if you're not allowed to to use them? So, uh, you know, they, so they face a, a very difficult situation because militarily they cannot win, mm. and that's you know that's that's very clear. No matter how many, you know, it's all very well and good having um, more sophisticated um, uh, weaponry, more sophisticated. Um, you know, uh, uh, tanks or armored vehicles and this kind of thing, but they're useless if you don't know how to use them. I mean, you know, that's, uh, you know, that's it. Sometimes it takes a long time to train people to use this kind of, um, you know, the, 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 this kind of equipment. So um, I think you know, what you're seeing is, you know, more and more people being sent to uh, sent to the slaughter. So they have that difficulty. And I think that the Ukrainian people are soon going to turn against this because, you know, they'll, re you know, they'll realize that, that, you know, that it's their loved ones that are paying the price um, and shedding the blood for, for Washington and for nato yeah. um, but the other difficulty that they have is um if they push into these areas if they get past the defensive lines somehow and they you know they manage to get to a position where they think they can retake control of the city the ukrainian soldiers aren't welcome they're not mm. wanted here so they're going to face then a resistance from the people of the city who will never accept them they will never accept um you know being taken taken back by the ukrainian forces especially i think crimea probably probably more so because you know that that's um uh, been under russian control for for a much longer time but certainly people are never going to accept i mean they'll they'll face all sorts of difficulties and i think again that's another um another battle that they that they'll have that they'll have to face and um i mean it's 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 astonishing that, that that there's anybody that seriously thinks that um, that Ukraine can win. I mean, it's it, it beggars belief. It's it's beyond all comprehension. So it comes to a point where you know there, there is going to have to be. I mean, every conflict is decided around a table and a negotiating table. People will sit down and they'll sign a piece of paper, bringing the conflict to an end or freezing the conflict. Like that's you know that's the other the you know the other possibility but um you know we know that there's been numerous peace deals on the table uh, there was one in istanbul putin um revealed very recently there was the one that was um negotiated um back in april which um i think both sides were set to sign april last year mm. and boris johnson flew over and said don't sign it you know, that's not an option for you, told Zelensky that, you know, peace wasn't an option. Um, this was the very same day, I, I would say this, this is very the very same day that Boris Johnson went over and scuppered that peace deal was the very same day that the Ukraine Solidarity Campaign marched through the streets of London chanting, arm, 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 Ukraine. Um, so, I mean, um, led by Paul Mason. So if wow. you... you know, Obeying his master's voice. Yes, I mean, draw draw whatever conclusions from 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 that you want. So, it's you know, I think you know, the one thing that the people want here, and I've heard it today, I've heard it nearly every day, is they want an end to the conflict. They want peace, mm. and they say, you know, you you walk around Donetsk city, they, you know, there's um, you know, the one thing that they that they don't do, they don't hate Ukrainians by any mm. stretch of the imagination. They you know they they you know that 
you know, some people identify as Ukrainian here. There's still shop signs in Ukrainian. There's restaurant menus in Ukrainian. So the Ukrainian language is still, you know, very, very visible. And that kind of identity is very visible. What they don't want is the Russian identity to be, um, you know, to be wiped out. They don't want to see this genocide and they, you know, they want to live in peace. And I think, um, yeah, everything is working against that. This is, you know, the more um, more arms that we see flooded into Ukraine, the more weapons. There's been all of this escalation, and that's all that we're seeing from the West is is, um, you know, the depleted uranium was the you know was um, a few months ago, and we've all seen the, you know, the um, you know the long lasting effects that the use of depleted uranium has. It, you know, go back to oh, Serbia most recently where. Yeah, Serbia became the cancer capital of Europe mm. after you know after it was um, bombarded with depleted uranium during you know um, during that NATO-led um, conflict. Um, with you know, um, I, I think hundreds of Italians, around five hundred Italian soldiers, are suing NATO over that yeah. um, because they were exposed to um, you know exposed to depleted uranium during you know. Um, the course of their duties there, a number of Serbians are doing are doing the same. I was in Fallujah in March, and I again, of course, Fallujah was most famous for the use of white phosphorus and depleted uranium. Mm. And I spoke to medics there, and they said, "Well, there was undoubtedly a causal link between the use of depleted uranium and the levels of cancer and birth abnormalities that we're seeing. You know, that, you know, that we've seen since then." Um, but they also said that they were terrified of speaking out and they've been warned against um, saying anything. So we couldn't get them on to speak on camera, mm. um, even under, you know, we can anonymize this, but they, they were too afraid to. And they said they'd been pressured by the US not to speak out. Now, of course, Britain has led the way and, and uh, in the supply of depleted uranium to um to ukraine which prompted uh vladimir putin to say well look this is um you know uh, a very incredibly provocative move and as a result they decided to position nuclear missiles in belarus so these are all escal escalatory um escalatory actions and uh, you know britain i think they they britain and the us have um have stymied any kind of efforts at um the united nations and at nato to have even a moratorium on the use of depleted uranium mm. while investigations are carried out because you know there, there have been investigations into the effects of it um and there are studies and there's obviously the you know the spike in cancers that we've seen in places like serbia and and, and fallujah but there's no definitive um, piece of research that has been done the world health organization i think started something anyway i mean we know the the devastating effects of that and it you know the use of depleted uranium is going to affect ukrainians it's mm. ukrainian soil that's going to be poisoned and um you know uh, ukrainian land that's going to be um you know riddled with the 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 you know, these depleted uranium shells so um i mean it's in their interests not to not to not to use them and of course now we're seeing the the cluster bomb so we need to move away from this that's um that's what needs to happen but i mean again in the western countries as we we've discussed earlier you've seen the total collapse of the trade union movement you've seen the total collapse of the stop the war movement you've seen the total collapse of what passes as the left in britain um including the communist party of britain who have all um, fallen in line behind their own ruling class I mean, it's astonishing. And they did it very, very quickly, actually. Um, so that, you know, again, I mean, we can look to the analysis um, 
put forward by the communists in Russia. We can look to the analysis put forward by the Communist Party of Great Britain, Marxist-Leninist, CPGBML. Um, um, and, and, and we're now starting to, to see some kind of formations, these no, uh, you know, opposing NATO, um, and uh, you know, a, a, an alternative to um, the kind of the tepid politics that are put forward by the uh, Stop the War Coalition and and others that are around them. So I, I mean, this is the this is what makes things very difficult because you know we will say the main enemy is is at home. That's one of the you know one of the one slogan, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And um, I was with the Italian trade trade unions from from the USB trade union. Um, I was with them. They're in Donbass, or they were in Donbass. They came for a solidarity visit to um, to Lugansk, and um, yeah, they were, they'd taken part in actions where they've grounded planes, for example, in Pisa, mm. when they they discovered that boxes marked humanitarian aid. They opened them, and they were full of weapons, mm. not humanitarian aid. I mean, the, the, these were supposed to be this was supposed to be full of medical supplies. So they grounded that plane, um, you know, that one plane in particular. And they also had similar action in the port of Genoa, where again they refused to load munitions. Even the, you know, we we are rightly very critical of the um, the Greek Communist Party's position on um, on uh, the conflict. But uh, workers there and communists have been involved in that have uh, again stopped munitions. Um, you know that are bound for for Ukraine there, and they've blocked um, you know rail. Uh, uh, trains they block rail tracks um to prevent that kind of uh you know that kind of stuff from happening um i think that was more of an anti-nato thing than than anything else in greece but um you know what, what it does show is that it is people and organized workers that have the power to bring nato's war to an end so more of this kind of um militant action but united you know a united anti-fascist front as called for by the by the Communist Party, and these kind of militant actions hitting, you know, the the arms product, you know, where you know where arms are produced, hitting the 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 transport the transport networks, and kind of you know um, building that that kind of critical mass that we've seen before. And it's not impossible in Britain, by the way. I mean, we can look to our own history and look uh, back. Um, you know, to the the Jolly George. Um, uh, you know, this was the the ship that was bound for. Uh, Poland. It was uh, lo- uh, loaded with munitions um, to send to soldiers there, uh, there and British soldiers, uh, in order to crush the Russian Revolution. And you know, workers again, uh, the stevedores um, refused to load the ship and refused to let it uh, leave, and, and it caused this huge climb down from Lord George's government. Uh, Lord George, um, obviously, the, the you know the prime minister of this uh, national national government at the time and they had to say well no of course we're not um uh we're not trying to um go to war with the soviet union but they you know they they kind of forced them to backtrack that action also forced the uh the tuc to issue a statement that threatened a general strike if um if this ship was to set sail and if britain was to wage war against the soviet union so these kind of small actions can have big results yeah. um and we saw with the rolls royce workers more recently with um you know that were were stopping um engines and parts from um, uh, going to chile where they were being used against the uh, the, the salvador allende um uh, government of course that government did fall i mean they, and and allende was killed or 
you know, or died or whatever happened. Um, but, uh, you know, it does show where power in society lies and it lies amongst the, the you know, the massive um, organised workers. So, again, this is, a, uh, I mean, uh, you know, these, the, we're almost, you know, a little, we're a little bit behind where we should be because, um, you know, th this kind of thing, again, is, is, um, something that should have happened a not a very very long time ago but um we need to build those those kind of forces but um and i know it will certainly be appreciated by the people in donbass that's for sure 100 yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's an excellent point um about the practicalities of uh solidarity action that are required uh real solidarity action not the fake stuff that um so much of the british left engages in um, that are required to actually bring this um, dangerous passage of history to a close. So, Steve Sweeney, correspondent for RT, thank you very much for joining me today. Lovely. Thank you very much for having me.